welcome to Fandom Media. Episode 28 of Fandom Media is Season 2, Episodes 12 and 13, the penultimate and final episodes of The Expanse Season 2. And as it is with any really well-done finale to a season for a show that we've been enjoying for a while here, it's bittersweet. You get a great ending, it's a satisfying ending, it's fun, it's well done, but damn, now we gotta wait a while before we get any more, don't we? <laughs> I can't feel too bad because The Expanse at least gives us 13 whole episodes. That's true, it is a longer season than a lot of other shows give us, and if you are feeling like The Expanse withdrawal is starting to creep up on you, we do have a few things for you, a few suggestions on how to keep your Expanse fandom running a little bit longer, including recommending the books for those who haven't read them. And for those who have read the books, as usual, we've got a bit at the end of this episode reserved for spoilery discussion along those lines stay tuned for that if you're interested in the meantime let's get going with the other stuff meta elements so episode 12 was titled the monster and the rocket and usually we like to talk about the significance of the titles but that one is pretty self-explanatory i think (laughs) pretty straightforward that's a very blunt title isn't it (laughs) (laughs) episode 13 has a more subtle title called caliban's war of course the proto-soldier project is called project caliban caliban has a lot of meanings it's originally a character from shakespeare and it's been repeated by a lot of other writers and authors and creators over the years based off of that original character or modifying it somewhat the general gist of what caliban has been not just from shakespeare's point of view but from all these different ones is that he's a creation or that he's raised apart from humanity and that he rebels against his master. Those are all parts of the Caliban story in different ways. Not all of that is from Shakespeare, like I said. So definitely a lot of similarities to our little proto-child. Definitely. Rebelling against his master, you know, being separate from humanity, all those things, you can see how they fit in really well. It's funny that they would name... The project Caliban after something that broke free from its master. Like, come on, guys, did you really just set yourselves up like that? (laughs) Mao wasn't thinking uh, straight when he made that decision. (laughs) So whether you've read the books or not, there's a great little series that show only viewers and book readers can enjoy. It's The Expanse Origins. It's a comic series. The first one was about Holden. The second one is about Naomi, and it has just come out. There's going to be two more, obviously, on Alex and Amos. So we have that to look forward to. the off season so check that out and there's also this is more for book fans a new novella that's coming out just on may 16th called strange dogs and we don't know anything about what it's about except maybe there's some strange dogs (laughs) maybe some normal dogs (laughs) there have been five expanse novellas to date so this matches the number of novels now there's now six novels six novellas so that kind of evens things out and for those who don't know the eventual plan is for nine novels and also along those lines this finale lines up roughly with about halfway through book two obviously we're not going to be specific of course we want to avoid the spoilers but roughly book one ended around episode five so there's still a lot of story left to go they're moving through it not at a really fast pace which is good Uh, we don't want them to rush it's a great story there's no reason to rush it so hopefully its popularity continues and we're looking at something really long term here yeah hopefully Before the season started, there were some Inside the Expanse featurettes hosted by Adam Savage, and little did we know that he was going to be on the show. That's Adam Savage from Mythbusters, of course, and he was just a small cameo on the Arbogast, and he had maybe a line or two. Yeah, he actually got some lines. That was cool. Those little things make you feel a little more confident that the show is going to make it in the long term when you have (laughs) famous people like that getting involved and uh, He won't be busting that myth. (laughs) That's right. Narrative. So episode 12 gives us a bit of misdirection to begin with. We have Aaron Wright shaving, which is a very meaningful scene in a way. There's a lot of subtext there. And he's talking with his son just afterwards. And it seems like a maybe a bit of a farewell or that he's planning on doing something big. He's not sure he's going to survive. His son, of course, has no idea what's going on. He does know that he's been screaming in his sleep and he asks him point blank about monsters. Of course, we know what that means. He's seeing the proto-child now. We can, we've can we been calling it proto-soldier. We kind of call it a proto-child now. We see that... It's been revealed that these are children that these things are coming from. So Aaron Wright also goes through the motions of talking to Avicerala right before his trial. And 
he has his scheduled meeting with the Martian ambassador. And all this time, it looks like he's getting ready to go down. He's going to you know, face the music at his trial. He's got this vial that it looks like maybe, I don't know about you guys, but I thought maybe suicide was what we were looking at there. And then it's just a total flip. He, <laughs> he goes on the offensive big time. The scene reveals a lot of things that had kind of worked themselves out. It confirms things like, Mars has been doing these things all along. You know, their whole, one of the reasons they want Bobby back is because she knows too much. And Aaron Wright kind of lays it out. He's like, look, this stuff's all out there now. We know what Bobby knows. It doesn't matter if you get her back now. So let's be honest here. And of course, this is just more of a trick. <laughs> and there's a lot of philosophy in this scene. A lot of human nature is discussed here about once this weapon is out there, everyone's going to use it. When we have a weapon, we're basically monkeys with sticks. It's not, there's, there is no restraint ultimately. And Aaron Wright's willing to do whatever it takes to even things out as he sees it. So when Aaron Wright goes to say goodbye to Avsarala, he seems betrayed by the knowledge that she's going to go meet with Mao. And as it turns out, he's going to act on this knowledge. <laughs> oh, yeah. But before that can happen, Avsarala and Bobby and Kochar have to head out to Mao's ship. And I think this was a really great scene with the departure, with Avsarala's face and her body language during this, and Bobby's reaction, at her little smile at Avsarala being nervous and tense and out of sorts there. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. And some great discussion between Avsarala and Katya as well. Yeah, there's a lot of good mini dialogues there, a lot of good one-on-ones, and it's neat that the meeting between the Martian ambassador and Aaron Wright is happening at the same time as this trip is happening. Happening. Meanwhile, as they're heading out, Avasarala and Mao probably feel like they're in the most important position of negotiation. Their decisions are going to matter the most. But Aaron Wright swoops right in and just takes over, turns the tables on everybody, and, and really lets Mao have it. And uh, <laughs> really plays his sob story for Avasarala, which I think is a bit of an exaggeration. He, of course, was, like he said, put Earth first, and yet he somehow acts like he's taking it personally, and he's doing the same thing she would do, all that. It's all very hypocritical, but also very strong. It's quite a power play. We get a lot of scenes of Bobby and Kachar interacting with each other. They're the two people that are traveling with Avasarala. Kachar, before the trip, is pretty rightfully suspicious of Bobby as she has defected, after all. That's good enough reason to be suspicious of someone, I'd say. <laughs> and she then says, where is the old lady? Which, probably also not a great first impression. <laughs> but eventually they are teasing each other and making fun of Marines and spies and they seem to bond with each other, I think, by the end of it all. Yeah, the mention of Avarsarala's son kind of puts a different tone on their conversation. Instead of going back and forth, fighting each other, it becomes about something bigger and more tragic. Something personal to Katyar that Bobby isn't going to laugh about. Bobby's not going to laugh about a fallen soldier in any case. And on Katyar's side, who can help but fall in love with Bobby after seeing her stuffing her face with cucumber sandwiches like that? <laughs> this comes up again. When there's a firefight later, the whole issue of Katyar and his relationship with Avrasarala's son comes up even more so. And so I guess you could say the conversation between Bobby and Katyar is a bit of a setup for the more important conversation in the climax. I don't know about you, but I kind of expected him to die there. You know, it was kind of like, felt like a Star Trek mission where you got three characters going into a dangerous situation. It'd be kind of hard for all of them to survive. And it feels like Avasarala and Bobby are the more important characters. If you had to rank them, I guess you'd say Katyar is the least important of the three. And then he gets shot. So it's like, oh, yeah, maybe he's going to die. But no, nope, so far he's... He's still alive. Maybe he'll die in episode one of next season, but so far he's still around. So I'm, that was a nice surprise. Yeah, I think it was definitely very likely that he would have died there. But when I thought about it in retrospect, Avastrella has very few characters around her in the first place for her to interact with. That's a good point. There's a couple of moments in this scene of people going back and forth with what their choices are, what their options are. In the case of the head of security, whose name we don't get, he tries to sell Katyar on the idea of, hey, I'll let you go. We don't care about you. We only care about Avasarala. And at the other end, Bobby convinces the electrical engineer that he shouldn't lay down his life for Mao. That would be ridiculous. This mm -hmm. man's not worth you sacrificing yourself for. 
And what's, of course, there's a big dichotomy between these scenes is with, with Kachiar and Abyssarel, it's very serious. But with Bobby, it's kind of humorous. The guy even asks to be beaten up. Yeah, so he has an alibi, because <laughs> yeah. he has a thing for dominatrixes, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was a really great parallel between those two scenes, because... That man clearly didn't think Mao is worth it, and Kachar clearly did think Avasarala was worth it. He said that it was because he let Charon Paul die, but I think at the moment that Avasarala was willing to give herself up, as long as Kachar would agree to continue trying to work on this, he knew that he was in it with her. It's really interesting also because of the perception of power as it moved around to different people in the scene. It's like, who's really in charge here? Aaron Wright comes in and demands and says he's in charge. Before that, Mal thought he was in charge. Avicerella thought she had a lot of power in the situation. But when it all comes down to it, all of them are really just fighting for their lives at that point. You know, like they were kind of more equal. Avicerella is this powerful political person, but in that moment, Katyar had a lot of power over her. And so did these other soldiers. It's really interesting how all these inversions of power happened in these scenes. I thought it was really cool. And of course, it's worth explaining why that scene went the way it did. Why did that guy's gun not work when Bobby tried to fire it? It's because in a setting like this, they actually have fingerprint triggers, basically. Biometric. Biometric is the, yeah, that's the proper term, but it's basically like it recognizes the, the specific user only. It will only fire when that person uses it. By the way, that would solve all kinds of real problems in the real world if <laughs> only the owner of the gun could fire it. So that's also why the other soldier didn't freak out and realize that Bobby was about to shoot him because he knew she couldn't shoot him. He was like, ha ha. But, you know, she uh, improvised. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't call this a cliffhanger, but they are still on the Guanxin, which is Mao's ship, and there is a- another ship aboard. So there's two ships there. And Bobby certainly seems to be in control. The bullets just bounced off her armor. And that makes a lot of sense, by the way. It's an important digression. Why do the guns work that way? Well, think about what the man said. It's a pleasure yacht, not a gunship. You don't go, just like you can't go firing guns on, say, an airplane. They, they're probably special bullets, maybe lower caliber, maybe the guns don't fire quite the velocity that a regular gun would. So Bobby's armor is more than enough to block those bullets. And that may also explain why Kachiar's wound wasn't quite as bad as it might have been. That's true. A larger bullet would have done a lot more damage to him. Like a small hole is easier to deal with than a big hole when it's going all the way through you. <laughs> <laughs> Fandomedia.reviews. So in episode 12, we have the Rocinante crew split. We have Holden, Prax, and Alex, and then we have Naomi and Amos. So in the Holden, Prax, and Alex plotline, they're basically hunting down this proto-soldier on Ganymede. There's conflict within the Rocinante, though, however, with Alex being a little unnerved by Holden's fervor for this, Prax being not even sure if they should be doing this in the first place, and Holden just not even caring about anything. It's kind of a recurring theme for Holden. He gets really passionate or intense about something, and he stops thinking. There's a line in the last episode about what's our plan B, and he says, make sure plan A works. And this is kind of a recurring theme, where Hmm. he just kind of charges in headstrong and decides that this is the only thing that's going to work. And it doesn't really matter what the risks are because this is the only thing that's going to work. I really liked Prax's perspective, his thoughts, you know, why kill it? It's such a base human instinct to destroy things that we don't understand. That's right, plant guy. You're correct. But (laughs) by that same measure, I really really relate to Holden's panic in this situation. We saw through his eyes Eros and that genocide that he went through, and I can't help but remember it whenever I see him freaking out about something, that he saw something truly, truly awful that would haunt anyone for the rest of their days. So when he sees something that brings that back up, he's just gonna not be able to think sensibly. It's true. And when Alex finally gets through to him, after many attempts, after borderline disobeying his orders, it's finally a combination of cold hard logic the kind of logic that holden's been really slow to accept which is the fact that the protomolecule is just out there now with a complementary factor that naomi is in danger that she's about to die and in fact if they hadn't left at that moment it would have been too late and holden even points this out later he says that if it wasn't for alex talking me off the edge you know we wouldn't have saved you and this is also around the same time that Naomi points out that Holden has changed. He's lost that savage intensity, and he's more thinking about his family and the people that matter and having more reasonable goals. (laughs) You know, it's funny, in a small way, we have Aaron Wright to thank for this. (laughs) What what happened was the Caracom, that's the MCR ship, got blown up by... Aaron, right, as we find out later. And then debris falls on the Naomi scene in Ganymede at that point. And then 
later in that episode, Alex says that the MCR is on high alert after the Caracom is blown up and willing to destroy the Somnambulist, so they need to go, because their family needs help, and, yeah, basically, Holden might never have been convinced to leave. Yeah, it's really neat how all the different story elements combined there. They're really far from each other and seemingly disconnected, but they were connected in a really cool way, not just in terms of decisions that people were making, but, like, in an action moment, you know, really how just the timing of that missile and everything, and like you said, the shrapnel, really nicely done. So the other half of the Rocinante crew is off on the weeping somnambulist helping Melissa, that woman that we met earlier whose husband was killed. As it turns out, her ship has room for some people, but just for 52 people out of over 100 people that are trying to get on, which is a really hard situation for everyone there, from Naomi to Melissa to Amos himself, who's trying to make the right decisions for himself, and he doesn't quite make the right decision because Naomi has to take him out. And she was right in the end. She was. And he even apologized to her later when she approached him to apologize for doing that. He turned it around on her and said, look, that must have been really hard for you to put me down like that. I put you in a spot where you had to do that. Because he defaults to her decision making when it comes to moral things. And he realized that she must have been right. Because... That's why he's with her in the first place. Is because he thinks she has a strong moral compass. That's why he follows her. So, Like he said, I've been trying to make choices on my own lately and I can't seem to make the right ones, which was a really sad line, honestly. And I also thought that what Naomi said to Amos when she put him down was really what she maybe was apologizing for just as much as having to put him down when she said, I know you can't understand why that should matter, which is a very cutting thing to say to him. Yeah, I wonder if it actually hurt him. <laughs> he might have been like... Yeah, you're right. I don't understand it and just kind of process it that way. Yeah, he might have. So in this sequence, there's also this big guy. That's what we know him as, a big guy. Big guy. And he has this nice moment with Naomi where originally you think that she's really in danger here. He's holding her by her throat. But it culminates with him saving her life and putting her onto the somnambulist. And I just thought that was a really beautiful, moving sequence. It was awesome. Yeah, it was really sad and... That character was really interesting. He was one of the mob at first. He was scared for his life, and that's the only thing you can think about, I suppose. When you're in a life-or-death situation, there's nothing you can do. It's hard to not have that primal fear overcome. And he was able to turn that around and realize, hey, wait a minute, we're belters here. Our life is hard. This is what we expected was a possibility to happen in our lives at some point. Now here that moment is here. Let's face it. Let's not be afraid. And let's do what has to be done. Let's think logically. Let's keep alive the people that have the most life left. And that's, I think, why he chooses Naomi to live over him. Because he realizes that she is somebody that's going to save a lot of belters in the long run. They also had a really nice little two-line interaction that I thought was really moving was when he says, I had a brother on Eros. And she replies, we all did. Which just, Dominique Tipper is a great actress, and I thought that this episode in the finale had the best material, the most material for her to work with as an actress, and she really rocked it. Yeah, she was really a part of a lot of these emotional moments, more so than some of the others. Like, she got to work with Prax more directly when he's going through his emotional issues, and she gets to work with the Belters and their fear. She works with Melissa, and she gets to work through Holden's issues as well and Alex and Amos and Millie yeah she's really just the you can see why Amos picked her to follow as his moral (laughs) compass everyone turns to her and everyone sees how she ends up being right (laughs) but though Amos thinks of her as his moral compass I think Naomi herself feels like she's messed up that she hasn't done the right thing she even says she should have saved more people on Eros and she feels this deep guilt for not even really trying and so after this I think she feels somewhat redeemed though it doesn't exactly make up for it, I'm sure not to her. And that's true for Alex as well here. He saves the weeping somnambulist and I think that helps him build himself back up. Definitely, after his perceived failure to save those 25 men in the FedEx chamber. Now he he saved 52. (laughs) This time he saved 52. I guess it was more like 55, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Good point, good point. Now of course Naomi is going to have to potentially face the fact that She lied to everyone. She admits it to Holden. And Holden will probably forgive her, even though the consequences may be significant for humanity or not. She may have been right to make sure that all the different powers are on an equal playing field. And, of course, Amos can be expected to just back her. He's like, yeah, well, I'm sure if she did it, she had a good reason. He's not going to complain. Alex, however, we're wondering maybe how he'll react. And now perhaps there's a new person to consider. 
Yeah, Prax. Prax kind of had his, hey, I'm a member of the crew now. He sort of passed his test. He showed his worth and everyone thanked him and, you know, hey, our plant guy is all right. So it seems like he's kind of part of the crew now. Yeah, so we've got plant guy. Amos is probably death guy. <laughs> you sure do know a lot about killing people. Yeah, I think he's definitely <laughs> death guy. What's Naomi like? Smart girl. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, I don't know what he is. I think we can the go... The best with... damn pilot in the system. <laughs> there you go. For uh, Holden, we can go with something that Amos Reckless. said. Reckless. Like, you made a lot of stupid choices since you've been captain. But... She can be smart girl and he can be stupid guy. <laughs> Thinks with heart. <laughs> <laughs> now, just before... Naomi reveals to Holden that she's given the sample to Fred. She makes a lot of strong points. First of all, about the fact that no weapon has ever brought peace. She brings up the fact that as long as she's been around, and as long as anyone's been around, or as long as they've been around, the Belt, Mars, and Earth have struggled against each other. They've fought. Maybe not in open warfare, but they've fought in different meanings of the word. And this, it seems to get through to Holden. It seems like Holden has now finally accepted that, hey, there's no stopping the proto-molecule. It's out there. It is part of the equation and that is an important factor for everyone and for the story going forward and maybe a segue to all this is the proto child it's just the beginning of what the proto molecule can do what we're seeing the possibilities are really limitless here and that was pretty sad don't you think like it was a child and yeah i thought it was really sad it was just hungry yeah i just wanted some nuclear fission that's <laughs> all it didn't even really do anything except t- you know, hurt Holden's leg, I guess. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was going to kill them by, but not intentionally. It wasn't like out to get them. It was going to, through its own hunger, destroy them all. That's exactly what an anti-proto-child person would say. (laughs) I'm (laughs) pro-proto-child. It's defeating this proto-child where Prax really shines. It's this interesting turnaround because he's at first advocating for trying to save it because he's worried that it's May and... He's also the one that figures out how to beat it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. In the end, he's one steely-eyed man of science. That's right. Our plant guy. (laughs) So the season ends on this Naomi voiceover sequence where she's narrating over Bobby saving the day, the Arbogast being just completely deconstructed and disassembled, and Fred taking the protomolecule, which was a really beautiful sequence. But there was one scene after this, almost a post-credit scene, I think. I think it would have been almost better placed there. <laughs> like in season one with Kenzo and the protomolecule. It was a kind of similar scene to that. And this one was of May being put into some sort of cryogenic chamber by Strickland. Yeah, that is clearly a teaser for what we're going to see in season three part of the plot line it shows that there's still a lot out there like the woman who died with the neck wound said there's many more where that came from basically and we see the truth of it and this is all just beginning yeah i think the scene with may was important because it tells us that she was not that proto child which totally could have been a possibility yeah we have the question even being posed do you think that used to be a child from amos and prax says yeah i think so but yeah like you said it was important for them to show that it was a different child and that may is still out there so that that is probably going to be an important part of the plot going forward since i wouldn't call what's happening with abisarella and katyar and bobby a true cliffhanger since they seem to have at least stabilized the situation they're no longer being shot at I, there weren't any real cliffhangers here which is something i really like i don't like when shows rely on action action should be part of the landscape it's part of the story it's not what the culmination should be so i'm glad that the climax set us up for something awesome here we have the protomolecule in the hands of everyone now Mm -hmm. we have the protomolecule in the hands of itself it's doing its own thing as well which is really neat and as far as storytelling goes Boy, do they have a lot of options here. There's so many possibilities for the way they can tell the story. So many things this technology could do. They just have to, you know, line it all up for us, and we'll see what they do with it. It's really cool. Visual elements. So a funny note that I didn't notice myself, because I haven't actually seen this X-Men movie, but the location that Avicerella and Aaron Wright talk in, that, like, very striking white building, is apparently in X-Men The Last Stand. <laughs> That's cool. And I saw a screen cap of the two of them next to each other, which is weird to see. That's neat. There are a lot of shots of Ganymede, as we usual. We get some really cool planetary shots. I really liked the theme and parallel of viewing things through a camera. This was the case for both Naomi and Holden, with Naomi 
viewing the mob outside the somnambulist and Holden viewing the proto-soldier as it ran through Ganymede. Yeah, that was really neat. Different uh, parallels there. Of course, there's a lot of cool detail in Mao's ship. The Guanxin, it's a pleasure yacht. And holy crap, this guy is unbelievably wealthy. Yeah, I mean, have you seen the outside of it? They show it maybe once or twice, just the outside of the Guanxin. But it's so much more aesthetically pleasing than every other ship we've ever seen. Yeah, their others are all built for function, military, shipping things. This is actually supposed to look fancy. and supposed to look like a rich person ship. And oh yeah, does it ever. Yeah, I want to point out that Mao has horse as his screensaver <laughs> just really tiny weird detail i can imagine that horses are even more of a rich person thing in oh, the future yeah. when there's 30 billion people on the planet <laughs> like where do you have room for horses <laughs> <laughs> he also has that badass samurai suit there oh, yeah and, you know, i was, was kind of hoping someone would smash the glass and pull out the sword and start fighting <laughs> with that instead <laughs> bobby didn't have anything he was like <laughs> oh i don't need a i don't need my spacesuit i'll just wear this samurai armor (laughs) (laughs) i really liked the shots of bobby climbing the elevator shaft and the colors and the angles and all that had one question i'm assuming that that had some sort of motion sensor it seems like the kind of thing that they should implement if they had the technology which you know we have now and are starting to have the ability to roll that out so it would make it not cheesy at all that it stopped right before she got there and picked up right after she got out of range If it just has a motion sensor. That's true. You would think that Elevators of the Future would have that very, very basic concept of don't smash into something. Because it could wreck the elevator, too, let alone killing somebody. There's some other visual storytelling, such as when Prax gets his idea on how to feed the proto-child, how to lure it away by looking at the growth patterns in the plants growing in the glass there. Yeah, it's these beautiful circle of plants that he looks at, and you're like, what? I guess he just likes plants. But <laughs> <laughs> now he ends up pointing out the nutrient gradients and the fact that they're growing towards the light, and so the proto-soldier is growing towards the nuclear fission. <laughs> I also really liked this one shot of Naomi sitting kind of hunched over, almost dejected in front of the armory area that they have, just talking to Holden. I just thought it was well set up and good looking shot. Yeah, it was a really neat conversation too. I like how she ended that by saying, look, if you don't have a solution, stop talking to me. <laughs> We're not saying goodbye yet. <laughs> Probably the real star of the episode was Amos's abs though. <laughs> it looks like he's got, uh, it's funny because in previous scenes, you could tell he's muscular, but it looks like his gut was hanging out a few times. Oh. But clearly, no. The man does not have a gut. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it was just muscles. <laughs> I caught something funny on our second watch. It was a very subtle moment where Aaron Wright looks very suspiciously at Piotr's glass as he puts it down. And when you see it at the time, it doesn't mean anything. But then when you realize there's a poisoning happening, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that was a, hmm, that was just a kind of an unintentional, I can't help but look because I know you're about to die, etc. <laughs> One of the main featured visuals of these two episodes was the proto-child itself, which we got our first real up-close and personal looks at. We saw it at the end of episode 12 as the final shot, and then we saw a whole lot more of it in episode 13. And I'm telling you, the proto-child looks so familiar to me. It's like it looks like a family member. No. (laughs) It looks very familiar to me. I'm sure it looks like some creature that's been in some movie or TV show over the years. If you know, if you think it looks like something, please tell me. (laughs) Please tell me. I'm begging you. It's driving us crazy. It seems familiar to me, too, and I just cannot peg it. The closest I came was the mummy but as soon as i looked it up it didn't really look like the mummy it looks kind of like a white walker in, in game of thrones like i just don't know it's got this weird brow this strong brow ah. the, the creature itself had some cool sort of quick healing when the bullets were passing through it the holes were closing and i think this indirectly is what caused it to need food it was self-healing and that oh. drains energy i don't even know if they realized that they sort of made it need to eat by (laughs) shooting at it, which led to it trying to destroy the ship, which led to them getting it lured out, which, yeah, I don't even think they were aware of that first step. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so either. And they just torch it, just barbecue it, which was a cool shot and a sad shot, as we mentioned. I mean, this was a child, this was a being. It was something that was alive and had wants and needs and thoughts. And wasn't really attacking them. It was, you know, they they kind of attacked it first. Yeah, it's true. They also kind of set it free, but it doesn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, and I, you know, all that said... 
are not wrong to destroy it. I think it's just too yeah. dangerous. And it, if it has the mind of a child with those kind of destructive capabilities, yeah, yeah nothing good can come of that. Even Naomi said it. Yep. She's the voice of reason here. Yep. <laughs> if Naomi thinks kill it, then you should kill it. <laughs> so Naomi takes Prax to do this spacewalk, which was a very cool scene. I think earlier this season I said that the Diogo Miller spacewalk was one of the weaker visual effects moments for me just because it's really hard to show someone soaring through space and just not look weird. Yeah. But here they were walking along the Rocinante and I thought it looked very believable and unnerving and I could just picture Prax freaking out because he's never been on a spacewalk like this. Yeah, and, and Naomi has a couple of lines about you've never been space, you've never seen what it's like to not have a horizon. And these are things like like sitting here thinking about. It's like, man, that would be weird to yeah. just not see a horizon. Like take for granted things that we've always had. You know, there's always been a sky. <laughs> I've never <laughs> not had a sky above me. <laughs> even when you're inside the house? Yeah, I can the sky's still there even when I'm inside the house. <laughs> Speaking of the sky not being there anymore though, that's kind of what the crew of the Arbogast found themselves there. It just stopped. You know, they were going down and the Martian ship had shot past them and presumably it met the same fate, but wow, that was an incredible visual. It was awesome in the not the colloquial awesome but like truly fills you with awe <laughs> as well as tragic because you're like well those guys are dead aren't they i feel like they should have an arbogast like model set a puzzle model set because they clearly had to 3d model all of these pieces and take it apart and so they should sell that and we can have our very own arbogast it's asking for to be a lego product isn't it <laughs> yeah it, it really is i'm sure the expanse people would love to get some lego money <laughs> <laughs> I did really like this scene in general with the Arbogast. Before they actually descend, Janus is the one that makes the order. And him and Iturbi have seemed to decide that they're all in in this situation. They both really want to find out more information. And I think they both know that it is at the cost of their lives when they do this. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Like, they become friends and it's kind of a setup. They go, oh, they're becoming friends. And oh, now they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, man. <laughs> Circling all the way back to the first thing we talked about with episode 12 was Aaron Wright shaving. I thought it was one of the things they were communicating here was that Aaron Wright was really walking a razor's edge with his plan here. But he's going to cut himself. Yep. And he, <laughs> and he sure did. So we'll have to see how that goes for him in season three because this plot line is ongoing. Audio elements. And during that scene, he's hearing Avasarala's voice. There's some... Echoes. Echo, yeah, echoes is a perfect way to put it. And the one that really stood out to me was that you need to atone for your sins. Oh, yeah. And that shows that Aaron Wright really does have... I mean, he's he does have a bit of a conscience. I mean, he, he does have... It's not just a bit of a conscience. He cares about himself. He cares about his legacy. But he does care about Earth. And it's hard to say where one begins and the other ends, which it does for a lot of people. Then that's, I think, a, an interesting commentary on human nature, especially for people in power. Like the Belters that are stuck on Ganymede, for instance, which had an even sadder sequence than Aaron Wright could ever hope to have. Yeah, this is a real dichotomy there. You've got Aaron Wright, a person in all kinds of power, doing what he has to do or what he thinks he has to do, and he's scared. And then these people, the Belters, who are trapped and powerless and doing what they have to do. And it's it's kind of uh, a really interesting parallel. The people at the top of the power chain and the people at the bottom and how they handle themselves in these situations. The music, like you said, was really powerful in that scene. It was just it made the whole room dusty. They really do need to release the Expanse soundtrack eventually. It's ridiculous that we don't have all those Belter bangers like the Aerostream <laughs> or anything like that. I want it so bad. Seriously. And... The final scene, too, real creepy there, Dr. Lawrence Strickland, if that is your real name, <laughs> says sweet dreams to this child as he puts her in frozen stasis and he just whistles as he's walking <laughs> off. Talk about a sociopath. Final thoughts. All right, let's talk about our favorite moments. And then after that, we're going to do our spoilery section for those who are interested in book discussion. Stay tuned for that. So, Ash, what was your favorite moments from episode 12 and 13? In terms of funny moments, I really loved Bobby and her cucumber sandwiches, just stuffing <laughs> her face. 
Not only because it was really funny, good acting, it did a lot to show another side of her character, but because it was true to that type of character, I think. Like, yeah, I'll take the cucumber sandwiches, which, as it turns out, are made with cream cheese. I'd never had one, so I looked it up. And so cucumber and cream cheese are probably two foods that they don't use a lot of on Mars. Probably synthetic versions. These are probably higher quality versions. But cucumber just has very little nutritional value, so, like, it just wouldn't be worth it for them to even delve into that. That's a good point. They would go with denser nutritional vegetables and fruits on Mars for their limited space. Good point. But I also really like the Naomi plot lines in both of these episodes a lot, and I think my real favorite moment from episode 12 and episode 13 were Naomi moments. One was her just we all did line, and the other was her long voiceover at the very end. I was really happy that they gave this moment to Naomi, because I felt like she's been very featured this season, and I even started thinking about who the second main character, a third main character is now that Miller definitively isn't the first main character like he was. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think it might be Naomi, except for Avasarala. That's a good point, because like I said earlier, she's the one that was kind of involved in all these plot lines. She's the one that, you know, was the emotional anchor for so many different people. Yeah. And this is a very character-driven story. You know, this is, the setting is amazing, but the setting keeps changing. And we're about to have a huge setting change, apparently, for season three, with the protomolecule being this game changer. <laughs> but these characters, like Naomi says, some things have changed hugely, and some things haven't changed at all. And... The characters, I think, are what keeps us coming back week to week, more so than anything else. It's what turns the pages for those of us who have read the books. It's these characters. I'll tell you, and I think we've touched on this before, about one of the key differences between the books and the show, is that the books just didn't really quite dive into the characters like the show has at this parallel point. Halfway through Caliban's War, there's so much I didn't know about Naomi and Alex and Amos because they hadn't been POVs yet. And so here in the show, they're able to show us Naomi going off and having her POV, which really improves your understanding of the characters. Yeah, it rounds them out more consistently, whereas early in the book, some of them are, there's a little unevenness to who's been developed. Yeah, to be clear, around book, by book six, all of the characters are well-rounded. The writers have just been able to take all of that into account. Yeah, so it's kind of like they say, you know what? They get a do-over. You know, and that's, that's, that's why this, in this case, it's one of the rare examples where the show is better than the books in a lot of ways. I wouldn't declare it outright better. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, you know, it does its job of being the visual medium and of the fact that they get a second chance. That definitely allows it to make some improvements. Yeah. So what was your favorite moment of the two episodes, Aziz? Well, like I said, I'm so big into the characters as much as I love the setting. And so it's no surprise that both of my favorite moments from these two episodes were great speeches delivered by characters in ways that really fit their character. Avicerella is able to break down Mao's ambitions in a way that's very interesting and philosophical. She talks about how a young man can leave Earth and never look back, but an old man is kind of tied to it because it's where everything, his whole life, all his achievements, all his accomplishments, his family. She says, that is Earth's real gravity. And that's just a really poignant, awesome line, and it just seemed really true. It felt like, hey, this is something that we, as human beings, that don't live in a society that has space flight. I've never thought about, but we maybe have thought about that in terms of someone who moves away from the country. Someone who goes to live overseas and maybe renounces their citizenship or mm-hmm. is banned from their home country. Something along those lines. That's the closest we can get to it. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and in most cases like that, that person would want to come back to their home country if Absolutely. they could. Yeah, what's he gonna, he's just going to sit out there with all his money in space, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's no fun. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to go terraform Mars. <laughs> but my other favorite moment, it was in episode 13 when Prax is figures out the plan to lure the proto-child outside and he says, doesn't the ship have torpedoes? Alex's response is, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) that was awesome. So kudos to Alex for that one. And now here comes your official spoiler warning. We're going to talk about the books. We're going to relate what we've seen this season and a little bit of last season and maybe what's coming to the books. So if you don't want to hear any of that, if you don't want to be spoiled, we'll see you next time. Hopefully on one of the other shows we're covering here at Fandom Media. If not, season three of The Expanse, we'll certainly be back for that next year. See you then. See you in a year. Fandomedia.reviews. All right, to start off, I want to make a quick correction. 
Thanks to listener Paul Buckley, we somehow both remembered something wrong from the books. We both thought Prax shot first. I really did. I really had a distinct memory. I asked Aziz if that was his memory, and he said, yeah, that's what happened. They changed it in the show, and we had a whole discussion about that, but no. We were just wrong. He didn't shoot first. It was Amos in both cases, so (laughs) whoops. So one thing that we both like a lot about The Expanse is that they aren't tied to having one book per season. It just is so weird to tie yourself to that, and it just hurts the story so much. And it also hurts it to be like, okay, we'll have two seasons for one book. You just end it when you want to end it, and don't worry about ending the season on a book-ending moment. Which yeah, don't, is... don't invent an arbitrary endpoint. You know, they have a certain amount of time they can spend on each season. You know, maybe massage that a little bit so that the end of the season fits with something important. But yeah, don't don't rush it and don't expand it too much. Ha, expand it too much. <sighs> so season two ends around chapter 30 of Caliban's War. Yeah, so from a logistical standpoint. That's about halfway through, a little bit past halfway through. Yeah, as far as the adaptation goes, this is really well handled. So things that we have to look forward to coming up. Chapter 40, that's just 10 chapters after where we are. And a lot of that is slow things like just dealing with the aftermath of getting rid of this proto-child. Chapter 40 is Bobby and Avicerala meeting the Rocinante crew. So I'm thinking that this could happen really early in the beginning of season three, maybe the second episode, maybe yeah. even the first, maybe the very end of the first episode, Bobby and Avasarala land on their ship. Yeah, and with Katyar maybe still hanging on to life barely there, not sure. At least the Rosinante has a state-of-the-art med bay. That's right. It's patched up Holden and Amos a couple of times each. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, from a book standpoint, this scene with the meeting on the Guanxin is the first time we see Katyar in the books, but he's introduced much earlier in the show, which is, I think, a good choice. Um, like you said, there's not a lot of characters around Avisarala, so they needed him to be introduced sooner to kind of pick up that slack. Yeah, I think it's a great choice. One, I just really like Katyar as a character. Yeah, I like totally. the actor that plays him. And two, I really disliked the character that he's replacing, which is Soren. That was <laughs> Avisarala's assistant, and he was not loyal to her. Yeah. And so this was this plot line that went on with Bobby basically unearthing this and Avisarala trusting her because of it. It wasn't necessary here and who wants a weaselly guy that you hate added to the show? Yeah, that didn't seem necessary. But Kachar is significantly different in the books still. They've changed him. I mean, it's pretty standard to make characters more handsome in TV. But he's quite a bit younger. In the books, he's gray-haired and looks like a high school teacher. So he kind of leads people to underestimate him because of his looks. Whereas here, he I mean, he looks like he can take care of himself. (laughs) Definitely. So I guess we're going to see Julie's ship here. That's almost certainly the skiff that's on the Guanxin is the Razorback, and that's probably how they're going to make their escape. Yeah, I wonder if we'll see any mementos of Julie's presence on the Razorback that Bobby and Avisarala wouldn't understand, but we might take note of something. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Another thing that we're going to have happening, I assume, in Season 3 is this plot line with Prax trying to get his daughter back. I mean, he will get his daughter back, but one of the strategies that they employ is basically recording a donations wanted message where they record Holden asking the system for help and add Prax's message, and they just get so many messages sent in. And I really hope they have this Kickstarter campaign in yeah. the show. GoFundMe is relatively new in our real life civilization, but apparently far into the future, GoFundMe is bonkers. <laughs> he makes so much money, it makes sense. There's so many more people out there, right? And like, if, let's say, 0.1% of Earth's population is willing to chip in a little bit for some girl, imagine what 0.1% of the population 200 <laughs> years from now is going to be. I mean, there's like 40, 50 billion people out there. Yeah, it's crazy. So, I'm assuming they'll have that plot line, but I'm also thinking that they're likely to have it after Bobby and Avis Sarala arrive. Based on the fact that the season ends with them having to escape, they escape to the Rosinante. Yeah, so I guess that's going to have everyone come together. That'll be pretty neat. We have Avisarel, Katyar, Bobby, all with the Rossi crew, and that'll be the first time they've all met. I mean, obviously, Avisarel has interacted with Holden through communications before, but coming face-to-face, that'll be great. Just to think of what they'll say to each other. The quips will be off the charts. (laughs) That'll be great, and it'll be so surprising to people for that to be how the season begins. I think it's going to be awesome. Yeah. So a major difference here for Bobby is that in the show, she's a traitor to Mars. In the books, she just ends up working for Avisarel. There's no treason. There's no, oh, you can't come back to Mars. So that's a pretty big difference. She right now can't set foot on Mars, I would assume. And that may mean that if we're ever going to see Mars and it's not a new character's point of view, that it'll be Alex. 
In the books, they both go to Mars at different times, but now it's going to be a lot harder to get Bobby to go there. Yeah, I think it'd be a lot harder. I think it would still be easy for them to write that Avasarala got her pardoned, yada yada. It's yeah. easy to explain it, especially because they do have a novella to work off of. There's that whole Gods of Risk novella where she goes and interacts with her family on Mars, and I think that would be a great, somewhat mundane story to weave in at some point. So I think maybe a while in the future she could be able to go back. But I also think they're really setting it up for Alex to want to contact his family. Yeah, they've pushed that envelope more than the (laughs) the book did early on. Like, Alex's family stuff kind of comes out later. Actually, it is when Avasarala arrives onto the Rocinante that we learn that he has a child. Right. Because she is running down what she knows about each member of the crew, and what she says about Alex is that he has a child on Mars that he might not know about. (laughs) Right, which he clearly, from episode one of season one, we know that Alex has a family that he keeps a picture of. That he knows it's different in the show, which I don't know if that's a clue that Alex in the books does know he has a child or if they've just changed it. Right. That's actually a plot line that I'm most intrigued by because we know so little about that. Yeah, for most book readers, it's kind of a new thing. So it's something cool that we're not uh, expecting or don't know where it's going. Something I didn't catch until I was doing my reread just recently was that Avasarala and Eterbi have known each other for 30 years, actually. So assuming that they've also known each other for a long time in the show, this will be extra sad for her. Yeah. But also, Eterbi in the books is pretty significantly different from the Eterbi that we get in the show, Something I also hadn't caught. He's pretty minor. In the books, he's, you know, got dark brown skin and he's very quiet, which does not sound like the Eterbi we have on the show. He is brash and <laughs> funny. Yeah. And most importantly, Eterbi doesn't die on the Arbogast. It's not man. Yeah, also, they apparently respelled the character's name. Everywhere <laughs> we see it on the show or in interviews, it's spelled differently than the book version. Whatever, small difference, but fun to point out. And it was a smart choice to make the Arbogast man in the show because they get to show this stuff firsthand. It wouldn't, it would be weird for us, what are they going to show us the screens on this unmanned vessel? And it'd be really hard to communicate what's happening. So this was a, a smart choice from an adaptation point of view. One thing that's not clear, that may become clear in season three probably will be, be hard to explain at this point, is how the protomolecule communicates with itself. All its instances throughout the solar system are talking to each other. So when that protochild was destroyed in the exhaust plume of the Rocinante, that was part of what set off the chain reaction at Venus. It was going to happen anyway. It wasn't like, oh, now this is happening right now. But it was sort of made, I guess you could say, that perhaps the best choice of words is that it was accelerated. So that's a really interesting concept that's going to become more and more important as we head towards the end of season three, presumably will be the formation of the ring. That's kind of what we were both speculating on is what the final moment of season three would be because Detective Miller showing up, although that is something that you could push, that could happen at any moment, truly. Yeah. You could have you could have it happen later or earlier. As it stands now, it's set to happen about midway, early midway through season three, which takes us into, you know part of book three so i'm actually thinking that maybe the ring is going to form halfway through the season at that point it might be kind of like how they have eros crashing into venus was kind of the halfway point climax even before the halfway point yeah around halfway point we might be seeing the same thing here it's going to be interesting to see and you mentioned miller I really wonder how they're going to handle that, too. Like, they may not decide to bring him back at all. Maybe they just have voiceovers or something, but you'd think they'd want that to be visual, but they might go in an entirely different direction. Yeah, we just really can't say. I do think it is very possible that Miller won't be back. I think it probably will be Miller. I even speculate on whether it would be Julie or some Julie-Miller hybrid, both of them talking. It could go a lot of ways, depending on what actors they can actually get. Yeah. But one thing I'm also thinking about is... Clarissa Mao. Yeah, the other characters that are from the books that we have yet to see, that's a good place to go here. There are three POVs that we would assume we'll see in season three. This is interesting because I feel like a lot of shows, they have a new character for the season and we see them in episode one or two and they're introduced for the season. I feel like The Expanse doesn't care about that. We don't see Prax until much later, despite him being a major character. They are committed to doing it when they should be introduced. Yeah, it's it's a good it's kind of good that they're breaking that mold a bit because like you said, you we're all kind of used to these patterns and it it's almost a spoiler when you introduce to a character in a certain way you immediately know this character is really important it's kind of nice to not know how important the character is right away it's kind of cool to figure that out as you go rather than just being like hey this character's gonna be important pay attention to this character yeah so i envision season three will pick up right after 
these moments, we'll see Avicerala and Bobby make their escape to the Rocinante. All of that will play out. At some point, Miller will show up. The rings will form at some point. Maybe we'll get some sort of time jump. I don't know if they'll do that mid-season. It's not common to do that. But then they're going to introduce these three new characters of Clarissa Mao, Carlos de Baca, known as Bull, and Anna, the Russian pastor. Yeah, those are all characters that are a big part of the future stories in the books. But they're all headed for the ring. Right. So the ring has to exist, which is also part of why I'm wondering maybe the ring will show up a little earlier. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Either these characters will show up later or the ring will show up sooner or they'll do some significant tweaking of the timeline and just end up in the same place later. They may have to do something like that. Another character that I think we might be introduced to is... Michio Pa, who is a major character later on. She's not very featured early, and certainly some people have speculated on whether Drummer will take elements of her or not, and whether we'll see the return of Sam Rosenberg ever. Yeah, we certainly have to expect that they will reduce the number of characters, because that's just what TV shows do when they're adapting books quite often. They kind of have to, to make things simpler. To be clear, some of the significance of Sam and Pa are that they're lovers and Sam is killed. Mm -hmm. And that is an upsetting moment for book readers and for characters alike because she was a beloved character, someone who was in a relationship and everything like that. So if they want to keep a similar story beat to that of someone losing someone, I don't know what character that would be that would be killed, whether Drummer might have a relationship, whether we might be introduced to two new characters, or we just won't have any big death. I'm going to guess that Drummer takes on a lot of Bull's role. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because she's just tough, you know, very loyal, driven, you know, badass. That's a good point, and that would leave it open for us to still get Pa. And I really don't know what they're going to do about Sam, because I know there's been some casting kerfuffle with it being difficult for them to Hmm. do that, to cast her. Well... We can only speculate for now. I'm sure there'll be news in the off-season. Some of these things will become clear by casting news and casting reports and announcements. So we'll have to keep our eyes open. We'll be posting some of these things on Twitter. So keep uh, keep an eye on us if you're not keeping an eye on The Expanse specifically. Yeah, we're at, at the Fandom Media. Right on. Fandomedia.reviews. Another thing you can do with regard to interacting with us is suggesting new shows for us to review. Either episode to episode, episodes in bunches, or perhaps just all in one season in one shot. Let us know which shows you'd like to see us cover. Go to fandomedia.reviews and leave a comment. Also, if you've got a moment, go to iTunes and give us a rating or review. Helps get the word out about our show. Little shows like ours really could use the help with getting boosts like that. So until next time, I'm Fanky Adams. And I'm Plant Fan. <laughs>